0: the unseen and I'm your host Mike Cleland this episode is part two of a two-part interview the first part was broadcast on Mia Faroletto's podcast new observations and that was posted just a few days earlier on Monday of this week the genesis of this two-part conversation came from a phone call that Mia and I had together. Uh, and part of that was sort of like we wanted to interview each other. Like I wanted to interview her and she kind of wanted to interview me. Neither of us really knew all that much about each other. And we felt this would be a good formal way to uh, introduce ourselves to each other as well as to the listeners. This And this was one of the very rare occasions when we both went into this without any notes at all. I didn't have anything written down as far as what to ask ahead of time. Just treat, and we both just treated this as a conversation. Now, one thing we did talk about on the phone beforehand is that we were talking in the midst of this national, or, or more correctly, this global crisis involving the coronavirus. And both of us wanted to make sure that um, we kept the conversation optimistic and I guess solution-oriented, in a way that felt honest for both of us. And you will certainly hear that in both parts, part one and part two, of this audio conversation. Now, to be clear, this was a conversation, and it would have been perfect if I interviewed her for this episode, and she interviewed me for the previous episode, but it it didn't really work that way. It just turned into a free-form conversation back and forth. So you'll hear a little bit about me and a little bit about her in both parts one and part two. This conversation was recorded on Friday, April 10th, 2020, and that's Good Friday. Please enjoy.
1: So, Mike, what was, um, what was the experience that you were about to share at the end of part one?
0: Oh, the uh the experience of uh, the fear
1: yes yes
0: okay so here this is a this some people may have heard this story so I apologize if you get to hear it again but for you this is going back to 2010 and I was camping and hiking around the four corners area in the southwest in the desert around Utah and uh, canyon lands and then also Colorado and 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 I was with a close friend of mine. Her name is Natasha. And we had met at a UFO conference a few years before and became friends. And then we, she lived in Germany and she, I said, you should come over to America and we should, let's go camping for a few weeks in the desert. And she said, great, I would love that. And it was this magical trip. And we did some wonderful camping around Canyonlands. And then there was a point when uh, my home was in Idaho and I was going to be returning to Idaho. and, And so I had to. It's like, let's, let's, uh, well, let's head back. And as we were doing that, we had just visited um, Mesa Verde, which is in the uh, southern west corner of Colorado. Uh, It's the ancient Indian grounds. And as we were leaving there, like fully aware, we were driving back to my house up in Idaho, which is a big, long drive, a beautiful drive. And and my brakes were acting funny on my car. I could feel it just was trying to stop and I w didn't feel right and and then even there was a smell. I could smell something like, oh, this isn't this isn't good. So I went to this little town of um Cortez, Colorado. And and we had lunch and I asked the guy at the lunch counter, You know a good mechanic here and he, he said, Oh, here's the guy you need to talk to his little town. So I went to this spot and so we went in and I said that my brakes are acting funny. There's a smell and they said, Okay, we'll put it up on the lift, just hang out here. And so Natasha and I it was a lovely spring day. It was May and uh, we were sitting outside and uh, a little while later they called us back into the, to the uh, garage and this guy literally, it's like totally, he's walking out of the back of the garage and he's got the oily rag and he's wiping his hands off and he says, I can't let you leave town or you'll die. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, what do you mean? <laughs> so he said, okay, the brakes are, are failing and I cannot let you leave the shop because if you got into trouble... And if you got into an accident, I could be held liable. And I said, uh, okay. I mean, that was he seemed legit because the, I mean, the brakes were not working. And and he said, yeah, if you if you were going fast and got in an accident, then this the brakes are bad enough they could they could be the they could create an accident. So now we're like, okay, well, what does this mean? He says, well, I'll order the part, and then let's took a little phone calls here and there. He said, it's going to take five days for the part to come in. So here we are stuck in this beautiful part of the country for five days, and the The owner of the shop kind of worked with me a little bit, and he said, "We can get you a -a rent-a-car. I know the place, the rent-a-car place here." So I got a super cheap rent-a-car, and we just moved everything out of my car into the rent-a-car, and we spent another five days driving around. Now that night, I asked a lady at the coffee shop, "Like, where's a good spot to camp?" Now, I've spent a lot of time camping and traveling around the West. There's this, like, in little towns, like everyone knows the spot to go camping. If you need a spot to camp for the night, oh, there's a spot just out of town. Every little town in the West has that. So I asked this woman at the counter, and she said, oh, there's this great spot. You'd go to take this road to this road and you turn left here. And there's this beautiful stretch of a national forest land and totally open camping. You'll, you'll see the sites and spots. So that we went there and there's a spot and we pulled off. And it was this lovely, perfect, high desert, uh, lodgepole pines and junipers and stuff like that. Just a beautiful spot. So we set up our tent. And we went into town for dinner, and I remember Natasha, who's very intuitive, was really upset. She, was, she started crying at dinner, and I'm like, what's up? And she was like, she couldn't articulate what was wrong, but there was something. She sensed something was wrong. And then we went back to the tent. We went to sleep, and, I, and, and then we woke up, both of us at the same moment, screaming, like screaming in fear and it was primal and it was like i have never ever ever experienced anything like this now i'm like a professional camper i've spent a lot of time in tents and i have i've dealt with moose and bears and stuff like that. I, I have never felt like this i mean if a bear had ripped through the tent and put its jaws around my throat i would not have been as scared in that moment as i was as i was with this thing that both natasha and i felt i have a, i've actually called it synthetic fear because it doesn't have a name, right?
1: Uh huh. Louche, louche. Isn't louche the name for L-O-O-S-H? Is the name for that random fear that circulates and in the collective and and that we contribute to and receive from at various times.
0: I don't. I mean, I, this was this was Natasha and I, both of us the fear thing was was if it was on a dial it would be totally in the red part you know and then the dial would like explode <laughs> it was like it was it was insane and I remember th- trying to talk with her like what happened what happened what happened because it's my sense she screamed first and shes all she would say is I saw a face and then i and then uh-huh. and then I remember saying like in this panic like we can get out of here we can leave the tent we can get in town I can get in the car and I didn't want to leave the tent like I was, it was so crazy I we can just get in the car the car was ten feet away from the where our tent was. We can get in the car, we can drive to town, we can get into the hotel room. And I was just completely freaked out. And then I, and then there came a point when it was just like, it went from total freak out to boom, we were both asleep. Like total adrenaline, off the charts freak out to both, you know, we're both asleep. And and then now I don't know when it was, it felt like it was just moments after falling asleep. This is what it felt like. And this memory is, this memory is clear and I don't trust it. Like something's up with this memory. Like, so all of a sudden I have this, this visual memory of floating upward. Like I'm like lying, like in a sleeping bag pose, right? And I'm just floating upward. Like I get that elevator up sensation. Now in the tent is this round shape. It looks like a pizza pan floating in the corner of the tent, and I float up and I look at this shape and it's it's about the size of about eighteen inches with a single dot in the middle of it and i and i and I'm floating up and I float up, and then all of a sudden i don't I felt like I should have bumped into the roof of the tent I didn't it felt like everything just kind of dissolved to this this white realm and I, and as I was floating up, I was saying, "I have to remember this, I have to remember this, I have to remember this, I have to remember this, and then I'm in this white realm, and I'm saying. Am I on a table? Am I on a table? Am I on a table? Now, I I don't remember being on a table, but I do remember saying that. And I, it was very fearful in the tent, what feels like just a few moments before, but I had no fear at all in this realm. I was like void of any emotion. I didn't have any bliss. I didn't have any, it was like, it was like all emotions were turned off. And, and then the next thing I know is I heard Natasha and she's, from Germany and she has this German accent and I heard her say Mike you're floating and then it felt like like I was all of a sudden back in the tent and asleep now this is a weird thing like how do I like I I went right back into the tent boom right to sleep that's the memory I have I don't know how it really played out but that's the memory I have the next morning you know we wake up and I slept fine and I didn't have any issues sleeping at all and I woke up and I'm like what happened last night and she was like, I, she, I tried. She said, I saw a face. I'm like, what do you mean you saw a face? Where did you see the face? And I thought it was like right up close to her face or something. I just like, And she pointed to the spot. It was a small tent. It wasn't a big tent. She pointed to the spot in the tent by her feet. And she said, that's where I saw the face. And, and it was the same spot that I had seen the circle with the dot in the middle. Now, that, that circle and dot is, is like a friend of mine is like a, Practicing magician, and he said he contacted me. He said that circle in doubt—that's called the Monad, and that is an ancient Pythagorean symbol. It's an ancient symbol from pre-Christian era of Greece, and it, it means the One or the Source of All. Basically, it's a—it's a term for God.
1: It's also the astrological symbol for the Sun.
0: Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah
1: a circle with a dot in the middle.
0: Yeah. So so I was confronted with this ancient symbol. It would took me almost 9 years or something before before someone pointed that out to me. And that's to me is very strange. Like why would I be confronted with this ancient symbol? in in the midst of this very, very strange event that certainly plays out like a UFO contact event. There's more to this story that goes on and on and on. But but I get up and I walk around the outside of the tent. It's a beautiful morning. The birds are chirping and the sun is shining. It's absolutely lovely, calm, warm spring morning. And I'm I'm walking around looking for a spot where a burn mark in the dirt or the grass where a flying saucer would land landed There I didn't find anything. So now we're stuck in this part of the country for the next five days or four days now. And I I contacted a friend who'd spent a lot of time down there. Her name is Miriam Delicado, And she has had a lot of contact experiences. And she spent a lot of time with the, uh, the Hopi nation down there, as well as the Navajo people. So I called her up and I said, listen, we're down here. What do we do? And she said, you go to Canyon de Chez and you do a sweat lodge with my friend there. I said, great. So Canyon de is on the Navajo reservation. And I think it's a national monument. It's technically not a national park. It's this beautiful spot. And we hired a guide, and we spent the day walking around in the bottom of this glorious canyon. You're not allowed in the bottom of the canyon without a guide. And it was just remarkable, just so beautiful. And I'd spent a lot of time in the Southwest. This is as magical a place as I've ever been. And and uh, sometime during that day, I took my shirt off, and I had a big scratch that went from my left shoulder to my belly button. And and it looked like a, on first glance, it looked like a single cat claw or a single rose thorn had dragged across my chest like a scratch. But when you looked at it very closely, it was actually a row of little tiny fluid-filled blisters, one after another, like dot 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 dot. From my shoulder to my belly button. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So the next day we did a sweat lodge and and I was uh you know, so I had my shirt off in the sweat lodge. We all wore bathing suits, and there was a handful of other people at this uh, campground. That the the fellow said, oh, "I'm doing a sweat lodge. If anyone wants to do it, and so he asked around, so there was probably six people in there. And it was totally lovely. Like I had never done anything like this. It was just like I I didn't have an epiphany or a magical experience in in the kind of the grand sense, but I had a I had a very lovely experience really heartwarming and and the theme of the entire experience was surrender that was his he's like you're going to surrender to the heat of these rocks and so he put these hot rocks in the middle of the uh sweat lodge and we would lay down and and that the last ones we had to lay down because it was just so hot we needed our mouths near the dirt on the floor to, so we could breathe it was so hot um and it was it was great and then we just you're exhausted at the end of this there's four sessions for each of the cardinal directions and then at the end we just like we were just drained from the heat. We were just laying around. It was a beautiful day. So we were just laying around. In the... And it was a really wonderful experience. So that's a long story. And it begins with someone saying, you can't leave town or you'll die. And it ends with this shamanic ceremony of death and rebirth. You know, the coming out of the, like you go into the sweat lodge to metaphorically die. And you come out reborn. So when people, I've, so I know when people say like, "Oh my God, I felt the the this fear that I don't know how to describe," and I know exactly what that means.
1: But it's it sounds like the two of you were able to let go of it, um, pretty much right away. Is that not so? It, it it doesn't sound like you were carrying it too much with you.
0: Well, I, the fear dissipated immediately. Yeah. The fear was gone like click it was just mm-hmm. it was like this thing i can describe it i can talk about it i i don't feel like i don't feel traumatized by it i was certainly mystified by it and uh in that event there's so many synchronicities connected to that event like i could i could i could talk for an hour about all the weird synchronicities that are connected to that event and it just goes on and on and on and and that was one of the puzzle pieces that that created my you know like that actually like i was still even after that was denying my own contact experiences. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do it as forcefully anymore. I kind of I was wondering publicly on the blog, like what happened. It plays out like a like a contact experience, but I didn't know what it was.
1: And do you, do you feel now it was a contact experience, or or something ancient in the earth?
0: Well, I don't really differentiate between the two. So yes, I feel like it was a contact experience. I certainly could have been contacted with something ancient in the earth, or I could have been contacted by. E. T. s on a flying saucer. I I don't want to. I don't want to weight one more than the other, but um, uh-huh. I, it sh- I feel certain that it was a contact event. Now, and I you know what I felt certain then too, but I just I was I didn't have it in me to say it. The denial part of me was there was like the little wrestling match of the of the two <laughs> divergent things going on in my brain, and you know, basically the denial thing was had pinned the the admitting it part of my brain, and there was just part of me that was not gonna declare that I was an experiencer or an abductee. And, and that's changed. I'm, I'm, I'm content with those terms now. I mean, abductee has baggage connected to it, but that's a vocabulary word that we use all the time in this lore. So I'm, I'm fine with that.
1: Well, it certainly sounds like um, it was a monumental moment in your life. Um, and, and how old were you when it happened?
0: So this is 2010, so I would have been I'm, I would have been 47.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Is that right? Yeah, 47.
1: 10 years ago, yeah.
0: Yeah, 10 years ago, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's incredible how certain locations hold, you know, their, their vortexes, energetic vortexes, and all kinds of things can come and go.
0: And at the desert southwest, it just drips with that energy for me anyway. I mean, I sense it when I'm there.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's a it's a very magical magical place for sure. Um and again, I think it's interesting that you have yet again a witness, you know, you have someone who had the experience with you and yeah. a very similar experience.
0: Oh, yeah, She's, she she and I share that, yeah. Yeah. So Yeah. Hey, what happened with the conference last summer? the summer of 2019 in South Dakota. I mean, we talked briefly on the phone and you shared a little bit. I would love to hear some more about that. I know Whitley spoke about it publicly on, on the site here, on, on Dreamland, and he also wrote about it in his recent book. Um,
1: a New World. A
0: New World, yes. Thank you.
1: Yes. The conference in July was, was amazing. I have not been part of the UFO community until I... But I guess I should backtrack a little bit. In two thousand and nine, when Edgar Mitchell came out and said, "We are not alone uh, was the first time that I decided to reach out to people active in this field. I've never really uh, well, I've never attended a big UFO conference. i've I've not read much of the literature and had not read any back in two thousand and nine. I was just content with, being on my own spiritual path and having my own experiences and interpreting them as, you know, important in my life and, and so forth. I was in my own little network um, with, you know, living with many animals and spending great deals of time in nature and kind of like, as one person I know who's an astrologer put it, kind of like living in Grand Central Station with beings from all different realms coming and going on a regular basis. But in 2009, I decided to reach out because I wanted to connect with people. So I called Stephen Bassett, who um, had organized a conference, and Edgar Mitchell's statement had come out in conjunction with that conference. And Rebecca Hardcastle-Wright was one of the speakers and um, Stephen Bassett said, you should really talk to Rebecca. So we became friends. And two years ago, uh, here in Vermont, I decided to organize my first conference. Linda Moulton Howe was our main speaker. And we had the event at the Vershire um, Riding School. And people came from all over the country and Canada. Uh, And we really had an extraordinary time. And what I noticed was when people went back home, their psychic and spiritual abilities upgraded overnight, which was very interesting to watch. And we started out in many cases as being total strangers, but by the time everyone went home, on Monday morning, we were operating very much as a family, and uh, I have been involved in the industrial hemp movement. New Observations magazine did a whole issue back in 2017 on industrial hemp, and a number of artist friends actually made art from industrial hemp, which is reproduced in in the magazine, and we participated. We exhibited at Art Santa Fe in July of 2018. So I drove to Santa Fe with one of the exhibiting artists. We drove in tandem. And the last day of the art fair, I was standing alone in the ladies' room when I had a visitation. um, An older chief with long white hair dressed in white buckskin and full spectrum, uh, color embroidery came to me. Uh, I had planned to drive to the Pine Ridge reservation directly from Santa Fe. And he told me that, um, the way was clear that I was protected and that they were waiting for me there on Pine Ridge. And I had befriended uh, Alex Whiteplume, who's one of the heroes of the industrial hemp movement. Alex planted hemp on Pine Ridge in as early as the late 1990s. And for multiple years in a row, the federal government came in and tore up his hemp crop just before harvest each year. So he actually fought the federal government in court for 16 years to win the right to grow hemp on Pine Ridge. And in fact, he was instrumental, uh, his fight was instrumental in legalizing hemp, industrial hemp for everyone in America. He's just an amazing man and had been, had served as both vice president and president of the Lakota tribe. So we became friends and I stayed in 2018, part of the time with Alex and part of the time at, with Henry Red Cloud and his family. Um, Henry is the great-great-grandson of Chief Red Cloud, and I'm close friends with, with both of these wonderful men. Henry's involved in um, bringing solar power to Pine Ridge, and I helped raise the last of the money that he needed to convert the Keeley radio station on Pine Ridge to solar power. Hey, oh,
0: here. Let me let me interrupt real quick. That what you had in the ladies' room at the at the industrial hemp conference it
1: was a full blown visitation. Yeah.
0: So this this was an apparition. This wasn't like a there was so actually there was no physical person that walked into the ladies' room and and
1: no there was no physical person. This but but a clear as clear as day.
0: Okay. Gotcha.
1: And, and I, sh, I should say too the white buffalo calf that was born in Connecticut in 2012 was born on the, the Fay farm, the Peter Fay farm. and my mother's maiden name is Fay. So that that's an interesting connection for me personally.
0: And Fay is a is an Irish term for the fairies.
1: Fairies exactly. Yeah
0: Hey I, I hate to do this. Let's take a break here real quick. Okay. And we can come right back. For free Dreamlanders, you are going to hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with Mia Faroletto, who also hosts a podcast here on Whitley's site called New Observations. We are having a two-part conversation. We're just getting to about the midway point of part two. And just before the the commercial break, uh, you were talking about Going to Pine Ridge, where you said the the way was clear for you.
1: Yes, <laughs> my trip to Pine Ridge was so extraordinary for me personally because the closer I got, the more free I felt, and I was going through um, an extreme expansion of consciousness myself. At that time, I had um, had a. a very profound enlightenment experience about a month before and all of the synapses, you know, I, I, let's, I've moved in and out of 5d my whole life for, for long stretches of time. But, um, I had a profound opening up uh, kind of like the, you know, the, <laughs> a, a a moment, a point of culmination that kind of tied and opened synapses that may have been open and closing. But, you know, from that point on, they were really open. Um, and they're pretty much open all the time. Now, my crown chakra and third eye are pretty much open all the time. But in any case, I I felt freer heading towards, towards Pine Ridge. And I just had this profound sense that i i was headed towards something really important for me personally and had an ex- an amazing time on the reservation the people were referring to me as the hemp lady <laughs> so um i drove back to vermont and had um another very profound experience. At that point, I was planning on having the second conference in Vermont, but had a profound mystical experience that transformed me for the whole day. I'm 64 years old. And at that time, because of the energy coming through me, every time I looked in the mirror for a day, I appeared to be a 15 or 16 year old girl. And at that time, I got the message that the next conference had to be on Pine Ridge. So I changed everything around and the conference originally was supposed to be in May on Pine Ridge and March was a month of complete flooding and destruction in the area from, I'm sure everyone remembers the floods in the Midwest a year ago, March. And Pine Ridge was devastated. Uh, Many people were not able to get out of their homes for weeks. But the place where the conference was to be held in Kyle had not had any real problems in terms of destruction. And again, people came from all over the country and Brazil and Canada. And we had a sweat lodge ceremony. We had some really incredible Experiences at Wounded Knee. And I was able to arrange for people to attend another sacred ceremony, which I I won't go into a lot of detail about, but there was um, a craft that was visible at this particular ceremony. And later that day, we were in cars heading over to the Badlands National Park, which was about 25 miles away from where we were staying and I looked up I was in the car with Whitley and Alan Steinfeld and um, several other people and the car was suddenly surrounded by hundreds of pink angelic orbs and probably 30 or 40 of them came in the car and were dancing around and they accompanied us the entire 25 minutes to the Badlands. It was quite Quite beautiful and very powerful. Did
0: other people see these too?
1: Faith Holmes was able to see a few of them. I am I, I seem to be the only person who saw everything, And but everyone noticed the profound elevation that everyone was experiencing energetically, and it was during this time that Whitley had one of his visions, you know. Mm-hmm. Of, the, of an alternate reality so um the, the but also the whole time we were there the the entire weekend there were all kinds of sightings and um flashing lights in in the house um that went on for hours you know other people who were at the conference saw crafts in the sky at night and it turns out that a Brazilian mystic named Chico Javier, who died in his early 90s, has has published and sold over 50 million copies of his books. I had never heard of him. Uh, in talking to people like Linda Mullen Howe, she had never heard of him. But Alfred Weber introduced me to his work, and in 1969, Chico predicted that the weekend of July 19th and 20th of 2019, there would be signs in the sky that indicated that man was now able to join our galactic family and that we had avoided World War III. And Alfred believes that our little conference at Pine Ridge is the culmination and of, of Chico's prophecy from 50 years ago.
0: Wow.
1: I was just going to say, what's interesting is the conference was originally going to be in May. And no matter what I did, I could not get it together for May. Things just were not working out for one reason or another. But as soon as I turned the dates to July 18th through the 21st, which included those two dates, everything fell into place you know, magically. And driving home through the Badlands after the conference was over, I received the message loud and clear that we had, in fact, accomplished something very specific in terms of opening an energetic portal. And, you know, Pine Ridge is part of the Black Hills. You know, we the Black Hills are the heart of the country, the heart of the world. Uh, Even if you're looking down uh, on them from an airplane, they're in the shape of a heart. Um, Personally, that part of South Dakota is the most powerful place I have ever been to, and I've traveled extensively in my lifetime. And I do feel that um, the healing that has the potential to take place there for all of us, for everyone around the world is, is extreme. It's primal and it's, it's profound.
0: It sounds it yes. I've talked to my friend Terry Lovelace about his experiences there and he said it was really impressive. And he's, he is not a love and light kind of guy. I mean, his experiences are, are outside of that. So, um, so I trust him when he said that.
1: Yeah, Terry had um some scary experiences in in terms of his contact and then it seemed from listening to him talk about it to kind of like want to avoid it. You know, I I'm happy to see that he's really exploring it now more deeply.
0: Yeah, he's working on a follow-up book too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's great.
0: Hey, we are going to need to take our second break. So for non-members, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with my guest, Mia Faroletto. And we are talking about the challenges that come with these experiences. Hey, um, so you talked about your first experience seeing a ufo uh in the in the previous session have you had any other experiences besides this in pine ridge
1: well i have experiences all the time when my life allows it i'll go out and sit outside and and you know much like james Gilliland up at east city you know if i sit and call out they'll come and do loop de loops and um you know, hang out for, for a bit. I, um, I have to laugh all the dogs. My cat was terrified when, when the ETs would land after, after that first experience, they came back every night at 11 o'clock and I would hear this kind of metallic kind of noise where they would land. And my poor cat Lily would literally just freeze in the middle of the room not knowing which way to run. But the dogs loved them, and they would land in, in the field, and the dogs would just line up in a row and wag their tails, looking at what one would think would be nothing. But, you know, I could sense that they were there. Um, and, um, you know, they were just a, a part of my life all, and they still are part of my life all, all the time. But I, I, you know, I think of them as my family, to be honest with you. One particular day after my two horses were put to sleep, I had this visitation of all different beings coming one after another, just showing themselves. And I felt like, you know, this was just my star family coming to say hello. What, you know, my purpose, I'm, I'm an Aquarian, so... We're coming into the Aquarian Age, the time of uh, community, you know, Aquarius friendship and harmony, brotherhood, humanity, peace, and in, in terms of human nature and brotherhood, these are all important concepts. And for me to to use this energy and knowledge that I've gotten throughout first hand experience is really all about making the world a better place, which is why I do these conferences and why I publish the magazine. It's to share information. Um, New Observations magazine is online free of charge. We've been around for 35 years. It's a well-respected art and culture journal and activism has been a part of, has become a part of what we're doing since I took over two years ago. Um, Our next issue is on the Pine Ridge Reservation, and we are showcasing the art of Leonard Peltier. And we've done a brief Q&A with Leonard in prison. And the plan is for me to interview him on my podcast with Whitley, talking about his creativity and his spiritual path, since all of this has happened to him. 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago. So to me, having these experiences are really all about how we can make a contribution to the world. Um, if we have the ability, as you said earlier, Mike, to use this in optimistic ways and, and for the benefit of everybody. And this is the time when we have to focus on being universal citizens citizens of the of the universe, not just of the planet. We're not, we haven't done so well as far as being citizens of the planet yet. But I think we have the ability to step up right now.
0: I sure hope so. I sure hope so. How do you see the role of the artist in all of this?
1: The artist has a very specific role. The artist is, is the shaman of his, society, his or her society. You know, the artists, the writers are the visionaries. They go out and with their, you know, creativity and they see the future and they come back and tell the rest of us about it. I listened to a very interesting interview with um, Salman Rushdie in back in the fall and he, he was talking about the role of the artist specifically in this way that the artist is the one who informs the rest of us. And years ago, Francis Ford Coppola was interviewed on inside the actor studio. And the last thing he said uh, was go out and change the world with art. You can change the world with art. The artist is the one who learns how to create from nothing you're confronted with a blank canvas or piece of paper. It's true for the writers also, and every day you have to create something, come up with solutions, um, viable solutions for a finished work of art or a project. Or it teaches you to think in new ways. And um, my art education is the most important thing in my toolbox because the sky's the limit, you know? There's nothing out there that can't be conceived of if, if you're open-minded.
0: You know, I, I I, haven't shared this with you, but I've certainly shared it with everyone on this podcast and over in my writing and stuff and in my books. I So I went through a dark period of severe clinical depression, and it lasted a long time, and I feel like I'm past it, knock wood here. And, um, but I saw a lot of therapists, and, and I remember... I actually got very little out of therapy. Like, I got very little back from therapy. I felt like I wasn't benefiting that much, even though I tried to make it work. But one thing that I remember very clearly, this is going back, I must be 30 years ago now. And I, I remember saying to the therapist, like, I don't see the world. I don't see the world like everyone else sees it. I just, I feel like I see it so differently. And without skipping a beat, she said, well, that's the role of the artist. Right and and i and i struggled with myself as an artist cuz i was working in new york city as an illustrator and to me there's a big difference right i was working for advertising agencies i was doing storyboards for dishwashing liquid and in little kids plastic toys and stuff like that and and so i you know it was it was work a day drudgery for much of it i made a ton of money in, as a 20 something year old <laughs> living in manhattan but it was it was soulless in a lot of ways so but i went on to do a bunch of books, these cartoon books, teaching people how to, you know, outdoor skills. And I, there was really a spiritual side to that for me. Uh, you know, they're, they're instructional stuff with these goofy cartoons. and But, you know, the, the goal of those books was to get people out there into the mountains and into the backcountry and into nature and into the wilderness in a way that was, that would leave no trace and was very respectful of the wilderness, the spiritual aspects of the wilderness. I made very clear i was very clear that i had to sneak that into those books um and now in the last five years or so i've been publishing books so it feels like i have not drawn at all like i just just yesterday i like had to force myself and i did a little sketch of a little bowl it wasn't much with a pen it was very simple it turned out nice and all but it was uh and i mean i have not drawn at all in the last five years but I have immersed myself into these book projects, which are, to me, a very creative outlet.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So, so I cannot let this interview go by without asking you the one question I would ask everyone on my old podcast, and it's the one question I ask everyone, and it's to a fault I think. Have you ever had any odd experiences with owls?
1: Um, not specifically, no. Although I do love owls. But I have had a lot of um, interactions with red-tailed hawks and blue herons.
0: Wow, herons. Wow, like synchronistic sort of mystical stories? or?
1: Um, n- well, uh, I lived about five minutes from a major uh, blue heron rookery at my house in upstate New York. There were, I don't know, maybe 15 nests beautiful, as as you know, Mike, prehistoric massive nests where these herons hang out over a wetland. And I had a spring-fed pond in the backyard, so they came every day fishing. The pond was stocked with um, bass, and um, they would hang out with me. I had one in particular that would come and sit in the tree. I'd sit underneath the tree, and he'd hang out above my head And the day that I left to move to Vermont, all the animals came out to say goodbye. Um, When I was leaving, there was a massive beaver colony across the road and the mothers would let me get five or six feet away from the babies as they'd be eating by the side of the wetland. And a couple snapping turtles would let me pick them up to see their eggs that they had just laid. Um, You know, I was very immersed in the ecosystem around my house, but... This blue heron, whom I had sat with that day, late in the afternoon, swooped down maybe eight or ten feet above my head and did a complete circle above my head and then flew away. But to me, it was his way of saying goodbye.
0: And this is actually very common, like the animals. There was one woman, and she was in my second book, and her name is Kristen, And she, her husband says, like, calls her Snow White because it's like the scene, whenever she goes outside, it's like that scene from Snow White where the, you know, the squirrels like wash the dishes with their tails and the the sparrows like hang the laundry for her and stuff like that. It's not quite to that degree, but like, but she has had, she has had some beautiful animal experiences. And, and so this is this blurring, right? So like, I mean, if we were like, we're, we're in this world now, like there was a, there's still places on earth where this is happening, but for us, like I'm, you know, a white Westerner, you know, I lived in New York City, and and I don't have access to a, a shaman the way I would have had in another chapter of human history. I think there was always someone at the edge of the village that if you had a spiritual experience with a great blue heron or with an owl, a, a meaningful experience, you would have an outlet. You could go and say, I just had this experience, this powerful experience. What does it mean? Help me interpret what just happened. And, and they, you know, there's any number of things that they could say, I think it would probably change in different traditions in different places on earth. But, you know, we don't have that right now in any meaningful way. It's still there if you have to dig for it. And so in a way I have become that outlet for people who have had owl experiences. So I'm getting hit, you know, like it's, it is actually toned down in the last six months or so, and I'm so grateful. It used to be about one a day where I would get someone who would tell me a powerful owl story. Now it's most days of the week, so it's been chopped down in half, really. I'm getting 50% of the volume of stories, and I'm relieved because it was it was a full-time job, really, answering emails, and I tried to be thoughtful in my replies and things like that, and I, and I was just overwhelmed. I couldn't do it, but, you know, so there's this need where like, the, these animals are symbolic. Like, there's a, there's a metaphoric, symbolic experience unfolding for the observer, you know, for, for the person, for you. And, I mean, saying goodbye is a very simple thing. But, you know, it's one person when your neighbor comes over and says goodbye verbally. It's another, you know, when the turtle lets you pick it up and look at its
1: eggs. Well, my experience with the, the red-tailed hawk who lived at my house was timed to happen when i was working with my kundalini um in a in a very pronounced way and i'd stood on the ground with him maybe i don't know eight again eight feet away from him for about 20-25 minutes just communing and i went into the house and came back out about a half an hour later to go to my vegetable co-op And he had left me one of his red tail feathers standing upright in the dirt right next to the driver's side door uh, of my car. So I was thrilled with the gift. I treasured it for a number of years. And when friends of mine came with their teenage son who had just been bar mitzvahed, he and his father went down to the pond and the red tail hawk made an appearance and flew over them. So I gave it to Daniel as a gift, and that was more than 20 years ago. I'm willing to bet that he still has it. Um, I think these animals, you know, appear in our lives with specific messages, but also if we're stationary within a particular place, we can develop ongoing conversations and relationships with them where they tell us things all the time. Um, And that was the beauty of of that property for me. I got to know so many specific animals. There was a big male beaver that I could call to him, and he'd swim over and hover in the water at the, up by the wetlands and just look up to me, look up at me. His face would be surrounded by water, and he'd just hang out there, and we'd commune. It, it was hard with six big dogs though, because. Oh, yeah. You know, their, their goal was to protect the property as far as they were concerned. Wow. But there's nothing like nature. And again, there was a time when when man was connected to all of the signs around him. That was part of how he interpreted each and every day.
0: Yeah, and I think that still can take place symbolically. I, I put a owl T-shirt on the same level as a real owl experience. If someone has a profound experience with someone like if they're having a conversation and the peak of the conversation someone walks by with an owl t-shirt, that to me is just as relevant, just as powerful I weight it equally to a real owl. Mm-hmm. And I and I think we have to because we no longer live in the forest.
1: Right. Yeah, I I agree. I agree.
0: Yeah. So the owl is symbolic. I had a beautiful conversation with a fellow named Gordon White about, you know, it's when you confront an owl, you're not confronting one bird. You are confronting the spirit of the owl. You are confronting the essence of all owls symbolically in that moment.
1: Right, right. Absolutely. You're communicating with the entire species.
0: The archetype, yeah. Which another culture would have a different word for it, but yeah, so Yeah. It it always used to throw me when when you would listen to a native talk about or Native American talk about their animal experiences and they would say, Ah, you know, coyote told me this and I would as a as a westerner, I would want to like correct their English and it's like a coyote. Like that's how you're supposed to say it. That's how you write out in a sense, you would say, A coyote communicated with me. But that's not what's happening. It's the coyote spirit. It's the coyote archetype. It's a coyote energy.
1: Right. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely someone who's almost more happy with being with animals. I'd rather, you know, animals have been, in many cases, my first love. And I'm, if I were to spend the rest of my life alone with animals, I, I could do that in a heartbeat.
0: Yes, they each have their own archetypal power. And they're here for a reason. And they're here... You know, there's a part of us, I think, that still feels at home in the forest. And I certainly do. hmm Hey, we're getting to the last few minutes of part two of this. Is there anything you want to share before, before we say goodbye?
1: Um, I would like to share that we're having our third conference um, out in South Dakota uh, this coming July 23rd through the 27th. And we have amazing speakers lined up. Whitley will be joining us, Linda Moulton Howe, Barbara Lamb. It just started snowing. I'm looking out the window, and it's April in Vermont. We just started to get (laughs) snow. Ilana Freeland, uh, Rebecca Hardcastle-Wright. It's going to be quite a wonderful gathering at the Thunderheart Center for the Arts uh, in Wasta, which is on the edge of the Badlands. Uh, We are not doing an artist and residency program for artists and writers until next spring, a year from now, because of the virus. But we hope to have a couple of conferences before the end of the year. And one of them will be for visionaries to come out in conjunction with an issue of the magazine that we're planning on what we can envision for a possible future after the virus. So stay tuned for for both of those things. And thank you so much, Mike. This has been amazing. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Yes,
0: and I've enjoyed it immensely too. And it's it's good to get to know you. We spoke very briefly on the phone, going back a few summers ago when when you were. I saw some information about your conference, and there was there was a busy part of the year for me. I, there was no way that Andrea and I could leave the inn for the weekend. But um, yeah, it sounds like a remarkable event. And just I'm I'm really. Uh, impressed at the 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 stories from last summer's conference, and I'm glad you had a chance to share that because uh, you know Whitley certainly wrote about it in the book, and and I and I had been wondering you know like wow you know how how was that? So that was great to to actually hear you get to share all that.
1: Yeah, it was a magical time for everyone, and um, and again, people went back to their home states or home countries, and brought that energy with them so that's what we're all doing you know with these things with this sharing of information
0: this is wonderful thank you so much this has been great and uh and for people listening to this i will remind them that there is a part one and that will be on mia's new observations podcast site here on whitley's site so i'll put a link to your show in my show notes to part one in the show notes and and then you can put a link to part two once it goes online absolutely great great
1: thank you so much
0: you're so welcome
1: stay safe everyone yes bye-bye
0: This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. I just wanted to say that I apologize to the listeners if I repeated some of the same stories over and over again. This is actually kind of problematic in this job. (laughs) In this job as podcaster, uh, Mia asked me some questions, and I answered her honestly. So uh, if you, the listener, have heard some of these stories a few times, hopefully you know how to use the fast-forward button if needed. Now, as far as... What's going on at this point in history? I am recording this little summation, this outro, on Monday, April 13th, 2020. This seems to be the middle of this pandemic, the pandemic of 2020. If this show is archived, I am very curious how this will sound years from now. But what I hope, what I hope is that we, collectively as Americans and collectively as world citizens can rise above the petty squabbles i mean i'm i'm looking at facebook and it is so incendiary and i'm reading the new york times and i can't help but see the tensions that are just bubbling up everywhere i hope i hope and i will do my best personally to rise above all that and hopefully have some impact on how we collectively move forward after both this crisis of a virus, as well as the economic crisis, and as well as, I guess, the sociological crisis. I mean, people are scared, understandably, but we as people have gotten over so much in our history. And I feel very strongly we can get over this and we can be proud of ourselves in how we move on and make the world a better place. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.